Uh, we're going to be looking in Jeremiah chapter 9, uh, but I want to add uh, in our voice, I, I do want you to remember uh, the, the Smith family, Brother John. I hope they're watching at home, and you all know we're praying for you. Uh, they're going to be in uh, uh, Houston, MD Anderson Hospital, is that correct? Right Hospital, I think, isn't it? Yes. Uh, for four weeks, and uh, they're going to be staying in a hotel part of the time. And uh, uh, so if our church family, whether you're here with us or at home, uh, Brother John Smith is a police officer, uh, Little Rock Police uh, Department, young man, got a family, uh, but he's got cancer. And uh, we'd like you to, uh, to help us out with them. And uh, you can send an offering to the church and just put John Smith on there, uh, J-O-N. Uh, if you spell it wrong, it's okay. It'll still get to him. That's uh, the only John Smith that it's going to go to. Uh, but a very, very uh, good, uh, fine family and uh, so very much deserving of our help. So if you can, we'd appreciate you doing that. We're going to look in Jeremiah chapter 9 at some things God says, I delight. These things I delight. Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23. Thus saith the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me, that I am the Lord, which exercise loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, saith the Lord. This is a glorious passage of Scripture in Jeremiah chapter 9 describing the things that God uh, delights in, things in which God delights. You know, often Scripture refers us to things that please God, and we might be more familiar with that terminology. Uh, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 13 gives us a bunch of these things, Hebrews 13, 16. Uh, but do not forget to do good and to share, to do good and to share. To do good and to share. Look at it. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Uh, on down in verse 20, Hebrews chapter 13. Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, to Him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Uh, now, we all know that uh, uh, it is impossible for us to do things that would please God in and of ourselves, by our own strength, by our own power, or by the flesh. That's not going to happen. And that's why the writer uh, of the New Testament tells us and, and, uh, how that uh, God uh, is working in us, that God is faithful then uh, to complete whatever He starts, whatever He begins, and that God is working in us to do and, and to will of His good pleasure. He gives us the desire to do it and the ability to do it and uh, that is certainly what is revealed to us in this passage. God is working in us the things that are well pleasing in his sight. So a lot of times the scripture talks about, especially in the New Testament, things that are pleasing to God. But here in Jeremiah we find the story of things that God is just delighted in. In these things God says, I delight and one of the things that makes that stand out to us is the setting in which that statement is made. 
in Jeremiah chapter 9. And to pick that up, you have to go back all the way to the beginning of the chapter where Jeremiah starts out with a famous lament in verse 1. Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Oh, that I had in the wilderness a lodging place for travelers, that I might leave my people and go from them, for they are all adulterers and assembly of treacherous men. Jeremiah begins talking about how that he wishes his head were a fountain of waters. Have you ever cried till you had no tears left to cry? That's where Jeremiah was. And he was lamenting that fact to God, saying, God, I wish you could put a fountain in my head so that I could just cry day and night over what he was seeing. You see, God had told him about a terrible judgment that was about to come on the nation of Israel. And he saw that. He knew it was coming. And he wanted to weep more than he was able to weep. At the same time, he looked around him at the treachery of the people of Israel, and all he wanted to do was get away. He said, man, I just wish I had a place, a little cabin out in the wilderness somewhere I could go stay in and just get away uh, does anybody besides me feel like getting away would be a good thing y'all remember I said that here in a few weeks in a few days you'll understand uh, Jeremiah then was struggling with these feelings that he had deep emotional feelings deep burden for the people of God and God would respond then in verse 3 he said, like their bow, they have bent their tongues for lies. They are not valiant for the truth on the earth, for they proceed from evil to evil, and they do not know me, says the Lord. And so God doesn't leave Jeremiah wondering why he was bringing that judgment upon them. He pictures his people with the tongue like a bow, and what it's shooting, though, is not arrows. It's shooting out lies. We may not think about lies as being one of the most powerful weapons that there are, but they are powerful, powerful weapons. In fact, I would say to you that some of the greatest weapons that are being formed and shot out around the world today are lies, distortions of truth. And we have seen those kinds of things literally being weaponized by countries around the world. But God was seeing this of his own people. He said, I look at the nation of Israel. I look at this nation and he says, I see you just spending out, spitting out these lies against one another. And that wasn't all. Because he also said, you're not valiant for the truth. You are not valiant for the truth. That is, you're not courageously standing for the truth. So not only were they giving themselves over to lies and using lies and spreading lies, but they were also refusing to stand for what they knew was the truth. Now, God's not done yet. He'll go on. Verse 4, Everyone take heed to his neighbor and do not trust any brother, for every brother will utterly supplant and every neighbor will walk with slanderers. Everyone will deceive his neighbor and will not speak the truth. They have taught their tongue to speak lies. They weary themselves to commit iniquity. Your dwelling place in the midst thereof of deceit, though through deceit they refuse to know me. I tell you, there's a whole lot of lying going on in there. Lying, deceit. Not only that, but he said your whole house has become a place of deceit. That's our way of saying you're living a lie. That's what God was saying to him. They were spreading lies and their whole life had become a lie. God looked at them and he saw lies and deceit and slander everywhere. Does that sound familiar to anybody today? Uh, we might wonder why it is that God would be so concerned about lies of all things. He's promising terrible judgment to come upon his nation. 
because they had turned away from the truth and it turned to lies. You know, Jesus said of the Holy Spirit in John chapter 15, verse 26, But when the Comforter has come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of the truth. You know, one of the names for the Holy Spirit of God is the Spirit of truth. Can you imagine how grieved the Spirit of truth, working as He is all around the world, drawing people to God, pointing them to the truth. Can you imagine how grieved the Holy Spirit is of God with all of the lies, all of the deception, all of the untruth that He sees everywhere in the world today? Every single lie is a rejection of God's truth and an acceptance of something then that is a violation of His very character. He is the holy God. He is the God of truth. And a lie then insults Him. He takes it personally. As we look around us, we see people then who are living, as in Jeremiah's day, who do not know God. And therefore they approach everything about life and living from a totally different perspective. You see, we might not understand today that we are in a battle for truth. But we are. God knows it, whether we know it or not. Just like Israel was of old, when, he, when God looked down from heaven at his nation, what did he see? They were living lies, they had turned to lies, they were believing lies, and they weren't standing for the truth. And God knew that this was a desperate thing that had to be corrected. And he, in fact, was taking desperate measures to do so. It's no wonder then, Ephesians chapter 6, when we're called on to take the whole armor of God, what does God tell us to put on first? The truth. The truth. Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand therefore. How do we take a stand? We stand having girded your waist with truth. With truth. So in a land where people have embraced lies, they're telling lies, they're living a lie, there's so much lies and so much falsehood that they can't even tell where the lies stop, stop and the truth starts anymore. What does God do? Verse 7, Therefore thus says the Lord of hosts, Now I will refine them and assay them, for what shall, else shall I do for the daughter of my people? Now remember, when Jeremiah was crying out in verse 1, saying, oh, that my head were a fountain of tears. God, I wish you could just open up a spring in my head so I could cry day and night. Who was he going to cry for? The daughter of my people. And now God responds and he asks him, what else can I do for the daughter of my people? You see, God was uh, responding to exactly what Jeremiah was bringing up. The daughter of my people refers to generation yet unborn. The generations to come, the daughter of my people. Jeremiah was weeping because he saw the judgment of God coming upon the nation and he said, God, what is that going to do to these generations to come? 
But God instead looks at this time where He is going to refine the nation like silver, where He is going to bring them to the place where all that impurity and all that deceit that they have bought into is all going to be burned up so that the truth will rise to the top and shine like the sun and the dross will be scooped away and shown as being the impurity and the dross that it was. And then God tells him, what else can I do? What else can I do for the daughter of my people? God was telling Jeremiah exactly what was happening. He was doing to save generations to come. It's interesting. Probably one of the most famous parts of the book of Jeremiah is in Jeremiah chapter 29 when God talked to them about how that he was going to give them a future and a hope. Now the future and the hope that he was going to bring, same kind of thing that he says here. The future and the hope was being brought about by this present time of judgment. God said, I'm moving now in this way so that in the future you will have a hope. Wow. Well, how serious was this going to get? Well, verse 10, I will take up weeping and wailing for the mountains and a lamentation for the pastures of the wilderness because they are laid waste so that no one passes through. And the lowing of cattle is not heard. Both the birds of the air and the beasts have fled and are gone. I will make Jerusalem a heap of ruins, a lair of jackals, and I'll make all the cities of Judah a desolation without inhabitant. God's judgment was going to fall on the cities. And the cities would be left without inhabitant. Can you imagine walking through a city? Nobody's there. But don't think he's going to live out in the country and be fine. Can you imagine going through the country and not seeing a cow in any pasture? Not hearing a bird anywhere. Not the sound of a chicken. Not one. Not seeing anybody. The land would be left desolate. Wow. You see, we understand then this passage that talks about the things that God delights in very much better when we understand it in the context in which it's placed in Jeremiah chapter 9. God wanted Jeremiah to know and his people then to know and he wants us to know that he does not take pleasure in bringing judgment against his people. He doesn't look forward to having opportunities to, to bring discipline upon his people. But instead, he said, this is what I delight in. I, I'm a God of loving kindness. I'm a God of justice and of righteousness. These are the things in which I delight. And so as he does this, he is going to then expose, first of all, the false sources of their glory, the things that would tell them and give them a sense that everything was all right in their nation. They could look at these things, but it was a false sense of security. And then he gives to them the things that give them a true sense of security, the, the, a true sense, the things that are a true source of glory. So, first of all then, notice, what, what are the false sources of glory? Verse 23, thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, let not the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches. Three things, knowledge or wisdom, might, strength or power, riches, wealth. Three things that a nation could look at and say, well, we've got education, uh, we've got a lot of knowledge, we know a lot of things, our educational system is good and strong, and we know a whole lot of stuff, 
uh, a nation could look at its power, its military might, its ability to do things and accomplish things and fix things. A nation then could look at its wealth, how much money it has. And those three things, if, if all those things seems to be right, then the nation could glory in that and say, all is well here. This is, this is fine. We're good. But God said, no, those are give you a false sense of security. He begins then with knowledge. Oh, can't we glory today in how much we know? We glorify our scientific accomplishments, and, and rightly so. I'm very thankful uh, for all of our technology and modern innovations. I love air conditioning. Amen? I like an automobile. Amen? I'm thankful for a squeeze ketchup bottle. Great thing. <laughs> Y'all know what I'm talking about. We've got all of these marvelous, marvelous innovations, don't we do? Wonderful, wonderful things. We can talk about how we've harnessed the power of the atom, but you know God would point our attention to the sun. Uh, and every star in the universe has been using the power of the atom ever since he spoke and they began to shine. Uh, we might talk about uh, uh, another great accomplishment a few years ago. might have been radar, but you know God would point to that simple squeaky little bat. They had that all along. We're so fond today of our GPS. Oh, isn't that wonderful? Man, it can get us around. Let me introduce you to a salmon, or if you are from the correct pronunciation of the world, a salmon. You ever looked at those guys? Hatched as a little hatchling, tiny fry in the remote uh, upper reaches of a river, uh, so small you could barely see them with the naked eye. But there they go on their trip down to the ocean, and a few will make it. You want to talk about GPS? A few years, about a decade later, 13 years or so, those things are going to go right back, and you know they've tracked them. And they'll end up within feet, sometimes the exact spot where they were hatched. Isn't that amazing? And that's a fish, by the way. They think they smell their way back, just incidentally. Uh, they sm uh, I don't know. I, I wonder if that's all of it. Want to talk about GPS? How about that one? We talk about making light without heat. That's a good thing. <laughs> Let me introduce you to a firefly or a lightning bug. Don't see as many of them as you used to. But God put that ability in a beetle, for goodness sakes. Ah, a beetle of all things. Man glories in our ever-increasing knowledge, yet the more we learn, the more we realize how smart God is. The more we recognize His omniscience. Uh, just this week, we put a new satellite in the, in the sky. Oh, great thing. Isn't it great? <laughs> wonder how many moons there are around how many planets around the world today. Uh, I could go on and on, but I think you get the point. Uh, man rejoices in our ever-increasing knowledge. And yet the more we learn, the more we realize how much we have to catch up on when it comes to God. We today begin our understanding of the universe and everything in it with the simple statement, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And when you start there, then you're going to end up in a predictable place. But if you start somewhere else, then you're going to end up somewhere else entirely. And so here is a nation, and God says, don't glory in how much you know. You glory and say that you understand me. That, that, that's where it's going to come to. We'll get there in a moment. 
He moves then from wisdom also to might and how we glory then in all the things we're able to do, all of our power. Uh, and yet science quickly comes to a place where it says, well, there's nothing I can do about that. Medical science often comes to a place where it says, well, there's nothing more we can do. Political science finds itself in a situation where it says, there's no way for us to fix this. The government will say, well, there's nothing that we can do about this problem or that. Science faces problem where it says there's nothing we can do to change it. Social uh, science uh, will find no way to change all the things that need to be changed. Military power may find itself like a giant facing a little boy with a slingshot. It brings it all down. Riches are a great source of glory. But there's so many things that money can't do for us. No matter how much money that you have. And so we look at these things, education and, and our wisdom and our might and our power and our military power. We look then at our wealth and we'd look at these things and we'd use that then as a way of saying, well, things are fine. But God says, don't glory in those things. Don't glory in those things because they'll let you down. Instead, he points us then to the things that are the true glory, the things that are a true reflection of the status of the nation. And these are the things that God delights in. Instead of glorying in these things, he said, you glory in this. (laughs) This is a big surprise. That he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord exercising love and kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth, for in these I delight. A nation then can pride itself on its knowledge and power and wealth, but a nation can have all those things and be headed into ruin, as is demonstrated by thousands of years of human history. Israel was being uh, confronted by the nation of Babylon, and that was being led by the brilliant Nebuchadnezzar. And mighty Babylon had wealth and wisdom and power, but they were all lost. The Greeks would come after, and they too, under Alexander, would have their golden time of wealth and wisdom and power, but it was all lost. The Romans would come after them, and they would have their years of wealth and wisdom and of might and power, but they were all lost. Empire after empire, nation after nation has risen and fell throughout all the centuries, all of them glorying in their knowledge, all of them glorying in their power, all of them glorying in their wealth. And yet it did not stop them from being annihilated as a nation gone in the sands of time. So God says, I want to give you something to glory about. You glory, number one, if you know me. And I hope that we all understand today what an incredible thing it is when we have a nation that knows God. And the only way to know God is through Jesus Christ. If you want to know what God is like, you have to look at the cross of Jesus Christ because there God showed to us who He is and what He wants to do for all of us in bringing salvation. The true measure of a nation is, do you know God? Do you know Jesus Christ? Knowing God isn't about knowing, you see, that He exists or believing even that He exists. It is knowing Him through Jesus Christ as your own Lord and Savior. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ tells us that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, that He was buried, and He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. 
He was seen by multitudes of witnesses. And when we believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins and was buried and rose again, and we ask Him then to be our Savior, we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible says, and thou shalt be saved. And it is then and only then that you know God and understand who He is and what He does. And when you do that, it's no wonder then that the first thing God mentions is that I delight in loving kindness. God doesn't delight in raining down judgment and fire and brimstone. God delights in loving kindness. How many of you know this morning that God loves you? Say amen. Do you know, has God been good to you and kind to you? Yes, He has. Say amen. Yes. God has been good and kind and loving And that's what he delights in. We know that then God delights in justice. We may think that we, well, we we want mercy. We want a merciful God. (laughs) Uh, Let me tell you something. If somebody breaks in your house and steals all your stuff, you're going to want justice. Amen? Huh? Won't you? Sure you will. Sure you will. Justice is a good thing. And God's real fond of it. You read it, it's all over the Scriptures. Uh, Yes, God is a God of mercy, and thank God He is, because in spite of our very best efforts, we all still fall short of the glory of God. And thank you, God, that you tell us that if we will confess our sins, that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And yet God is a God of justice as well. He loves justice. So you've got loving kindness, and you've got justice, a sense of fairness and of right and what is wrong. And that brings us to the third thing that God does and loves is righteousness. We could call that just living right. Right living. We can summarize it all that way. Right living. Can you imagine a world where people love one another and are kind to one another? Can you imagine a world where evil is swiftly avenged, where justice reigns and is administered fairly across the board? Where what we portray with that justice, with our eyes covered and that symbol in Washington, D.C. before the Supreme Court, and what we portray, justice is blind. That is, it doesn't see any regard, any person's character. Equal justice across the board. We think about a world then where people are loving and kind, where justice and fairness and equity are found everywhere, where people live right and do right, righteousness. We are in a world today where we can honestly say that people don't know how to live right. We might think, well, don't they know what they're doing is wrong? No, they don't. No, they don't. That goes back to where we spoke of a few moments ago where we talked about in Genesis chapter 1. We start here. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that gives us an awareness that we are accountable to the holy and righteous and eternal God. And we want to live in such a way as to please Him. People who start somewhere else end up in another place out somewhere else. And what we know to be right, because God says it's right, not necessarily so out over here somewhere. But as we think about these things, a world of loving kindness, a world of justice and fairness, 
a world where people live right and do what's right. But just hang on, people of God, because <laughs> one of these days we're going to live on this planet when it's just that way. Right. It's called the millennial reign of Jesus Christ when for a thousand years Jesus will reign over this world and the Bible says we'll live and reign with him for a thousand years. It'll be a time of peace and righteousness and joy and down in the heart of every person who is made in the image of God, there is a longing to live in that kind of world. The reason why is because God created us to live in that kind of world. That's what Eden was like before sin messed it up. And he's going to bring us back. Not to a world that that's good, but, but a world that's even better because now we'll know the joy of redemption. The joy of that I once was lost, but now I'm found. The joy that I once was blind, but now I see. The joy that once I was dead, but now I'm alive. The joy that Jesus Christ loved me enough to go to the cross and die in my place. And forevermore, we can not only sing the praises of our Creator God, but we can now sing the praises of our redeeming God and His salvation and forgiveness. So loving kindness and justice and righteousness takes on a whole new scheme. These are the things in which God delights. And I'm glad to be able to tell you that the things that delight God... <laughs> They'll delight us too. What God wants to give us, oh, that's what we really yearn for. But it's not the schemes of man that's going to bring it to pass. We can't vote it in. I wish we could, but we can't. We can't legislate it in. I wish we could, but we can't. You see, the things that God delights in are the things that God and God alone can give us. And as we look around then at our nation today, I hope we understand in a better way that we are indeed in a battle. And a lot of people are talking about these days. But the main battle that we're in is the battle for truth. It's a battle for truth against lies and distortion and deception that's coming from us in every direction. But in a world full of lies, I can tell you two things. Number one, we are led by the Holy Spirit of God and He is the Spirit of truth. And number two, this book is as true today as it's ever been. It's reliable, it's dependable, it is the spirit of truth. And if we'll search it, God will use it to point us to His loving kindness, justice, fairness, and right living. Let's stand together.